online, on digital radio and television, and on the ABC Listen app. The Tasmanian Country Hour with Larissa Smith on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. On the program today, Tasmanian agricultural exporters and importers prepare for further fallouts from domestic and international shipping problems. You could effectively say that the, a lot of the cost of shipping is, is related to how many days that it's away. So it would probably put another 10 days on. So you could be talking about a 20 to 25% or more cost increase. We'll hear from fish feed manufacturer Biomar shortly. And the state's grain harvest cranks into gear. We'll go behind the scenes and catch up with some of the young women working on the Weybridge this season. You're outside, you're inside, you feel like you're working hard and lovely girls in the testing stand and boys. Yeah, it's a really great group that we've got this harvest. If you're listening in the header or have stripped grain, let me know how the harvest is tracking, what's coming in. Has it been a good growing season? Have you broken any records? Is the rain we've had in the last week or so causing any issues? Love to hear from you today. 0467 922 is the number to text in. Well, let's begin with shipping because the protracted industrial dispute between stevedoring company DP World and its employees is costing $84 million a week and has led to a backlog of more than 54,000 shipping containers, according to the company. Spokespeople for the company appeared at the Senate Education and Employment Legislation Committee this week and took questions from Senators Michaelia Cash and Jackie Lambie. Here's the company's Head of Corporate Affairs, Blake Tierney, answering questions from Senator Cash. The figure per week is $84 million. $84 million. Uh, In terms of the dispute in relation to the economic analysis, which, as you said, indicates the action is costing the economy $84 million a week, um, how can you be confident of your assessments being accurate? And have you been shown the department's economic analysis that has formed their advice to government? Senator Cash, we have not seen the economic data that the department has pulled together. I think we need to be careful of questioning economic data when the economist who we have as the third party is a leading expert as an economist within the country. I think the, to dispute numbers from an economic level can be quite dangerous. So in other words, you are confident that the protected industrial action is currently costing the nation $84 million a week. Very confident. Thank you very much. Um, Just in terms of the number of containers currently backlogged at your terminals, um, can you quantify that? We currently have 54,330 containers in backlog. 54,330 in backlog. What does that actually mean? For, For the person in the street, what does that translate to, and in particular in terms of impact on the economy and potential impact on them by way of rising prices? So it depends on container to container. From an import's point of view, we have motor, motor vehicles, clothes, appliances, furniture and bedding, and also polymers. From an export's point of view, we have meat, dairy, eggs, wool, grains and aluminium that are currently stuck at each of our terminals across the country. Just in terms of, you've made some public comments on how multi-employer bargaining could cripple the supply chain. Are you concerned that with multi-employer bargaining that strikes and other similar actions could then go across all ports? I might refer that question to our VP of People, Mark Ratcliffe, if I can. Thank you, Mr Ratcliffe. Yeah, thank you, Senator Cash. Uh, yes, we, we are concerned that it could cripple ports. Uh, all the other major uh, port and terminal operators have their enterprise agreements expiring in the next, or sorry, between March of this year and December of next year. Simply, if we were end up in a situation of multi-employer bargaining, uh, once those enterprise agreements expire, that essentially the protected industrial action that we're seeing now could go across the entire ports and terminal operators of the country. 
That was DP World's Vice President of People, Mark Ratcliffe. And uh, Senator Jackie Lambie also sits on this particular committee and she asked Blake Tierney whether industrial reform was needed to lessen the Maritime Union's control over the ports. I think there does need to be reform in terms of industrial relations on the waterfront. What does that look like? Do you, do you, do you, have you guys thought about that? What does that reform look like? I think we, both the union and also government, need to have a sit down to look at how much impact into protected industrial action does have on the supply chain. I don't have the solution. I think we need to work together to work out what that solution is for the betterment of the country. We can see that industrial action causes a massive impact to the supply chain, but we need to work together, both unions, the stevedores and also government, to work out a mechanism that is going to suit the interests of both parties. They have a legal right to have industrial action, but we need to work together to make sure that the next stevedore that goes into industrial action doesn't have the same economic impact on the community. Can you tell me exactly what the union is asking for? Uh, the, the current offer, and it, it's long and complex, but some of the headline statistics are they're currently after uh, pay increases of 8%, an increase in superannuation of 3%, the extra accrual of additional personal leave and the ability to cash that out or have it paid out. Uh, as well as uh, another uh, 40 other claims that are still outstanding, Senator. So is it, is it true what I'm hearing that over the next three years, that at one level of it, they're asking for a 27.5% increase over three years? Yes, that's correct. Jesus. And are they asking for drug and alcohol testing to be exempt from those ports? That has been a claim at a point, Senator, yes. So for the ability to come to work and for breath alcohol test at 002 rather than zero. Can you tell me, how much does an average wharf, wharf worker earn on an annual basis at DP World? Uh, between one hundred and thirty and 140000 That's DP World's Mark Ratcliffe. And earlier, the company's Blake Tierney answering questions from Senator Jackie Lambie. And the Maritime Union was contacted for comment but said both parties are in an agreed media blackout while negotiations continued. Well, locally, if you're after anything from overseas, get ready for some serious shipping delays and perhaps higher prices. That's because pirates from Yemen have attacked ships travelling through the Suez Canal and that's causing some major shipping lines to divert around the bottom of Africa. Jim Ertler from Vegetable Business Premium Fresh at Forth will start sending onions to Europe in a few weeks and he says the delays will have much wider implications. We're probably two to three weeks away from, from packing for the first, first export load. And considering, uh, just for a bit of context again, the Suez Canal is having a bunch of trouble, how might that affect your company down the line? Well, it's, there's, a, there's a couple of effects immediately. It's, it's actually taking longer to get to our European customers because we're having to go around the Cape of Good Hope. Um, and there's also that, that extra time, uh, there's, there's a cost associated with it. So it's, it's costing more to get them there as well. But we're working with our customers to pass that on. So best best way we can. The time side of it is, is nothing that we can change, really. Right. Now, does that affect the quality of your onions at all? Well, there's more risk associated with it because they're spending more time in transit. So... Uh, I mean, we, we, we've got some of the best, not just premium fresh, I think Tasmanian onions, some of the best keeping onions in the world. So we'd expect them to be okay, but extra time won't be of any benefit for them, that's for sure. This will certainly put them to the test, I'd say. Just for our geographically challenged listeners, can you just describe a, a picture of how your onions get from Tasmania out off to the European market? Okay, so we're lifting them and then around about four or five weeks after lifting, we'd look to start packing and, and uh, processing them. They, they'd end up going straight into their bulk bags or 20 kgs, whatever they might be sent in, and then loaded into shipping containers. Uh, those containers are, are taken to the, to the Devonport or Burnie or Bell Bay Wharves and across to Melbourne and then transferred into a export uh, shipping line through to potentially Europe or Southeast Asia, wherever they might be going.
and of course, at the moment, as you said before, you're going to be shipping them around the Cape of Good Hope, which is the bottom of Africa, instead of through that Suez Canal. How much mm. extra time does that add? That's that's huge. Yeah, it is. It is. It's probably 14 days, but it's more than just 14 days because there's the ongoing effect of tying up equipment, and we're talking about you know potentially millions of or hundreds of thousands of containers being tied up for that extra two weeks because it's not just onions that are going around there. So the 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 effect on stock levels uh, is going to be pretty significant. So around the world. So, um, yeah, two weeks is a long time. Basically, containers are going to be two weeks longer tied up in the transit transit phase. So rather than being put back into the pool of, of export containers so that they can be reloaded and sent back, they're still travelling around the, around the Cape of Good Hope. So... It's, uh, it's it's not just the time; it's also the effect on equipment. Is there a cost here as well? Have you got a dollar figure for that? Look, it varies, but but uh, it's it's perhaps twenty percent of extra on top of on on top of the normal, pretty expensive transit fee. So uh, yeah, that's that's a that cost that we'll be trying to pass on, but um, it might be difficult in certain circumstances. And from what I understand, that 20% uh, more expense is still better than trying to pay the insurance of boats going through these through the Suez Canal. Absolutely. I mean, my understanding is that they're, they're not doing it. So, uh, but maybe, maybe, the, maybe they are with insurance. But, yeah, it's, it's risky. And, and if a ship gets tied up uh, and, and people aren't controlling what's happening with the containers on board or whatever... Um, we could be in a lot worse position. Well, well, good luck with it all. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens in a few weeks when you start exporting. Yes. Well, I think, uh, well, I could just say that I think Tasmania's in a pretty good position climate-wise uh, as compared to the rest of Australia. So um, we're pretty, we're pretty uh, hopeful we're going to have a good season. Jim, you're heading into onion season at the moment. How's it looking? Um, yes, it's looking quite good. Um, it was probably looking a little bit better before that big rain that we got um, last week, which is, you know, I think it was in 75 mils in places, but um, still still looking pretty good. Premium Fresh's Jim Ertler talking to Meg Powell there about shipping his onions to Europe amid pirate attacks in the Suez and it looks, or in the Red Sea rather, and it looks like that's going to add upwards of 20% of the cost for customers to soak up. Of course, shipping problems go the other way too. Uh, there's, you know, furniture, clothing brands, machinery, goods from Europe may take longer than ever to hit Australian ports and might cost more as well. The world pushes an enormous amount of goods through some very narrow bodies of water and problems in those can cause havoc in the very complicated global shipping system we've heard about. Someone who relies on that chain regularly is David White from Biomar, a specialised fish food plant near Devonport, and he can explain more. You know, often you'll wait longer for something because it's been delayed. Uh, sometimes it provides less choice, um, but there are definitely cost factors that the whole supply chain will, will attempt to pass forward, um, which again doesn't help with inflationary pressures because we're not getting a better service. We generally tend to get less choice and, and probably higher cost. So from our point of view, it's not great because it makes goods and services a little bit less competitive. Um, and the question you would ask is, why should they be? Uh, the, the, the reality is that Australia is pretty far away from other places and most of our ports are viewed as secondary ports. Uh, so that unfortunately means that we're probably the first people to bear the brunt of any delay when vessels need to be in different places in the globe, if you send them to Australia, maybe they'll get stuck for a little bit longer, which doesn't help the shipping companies, but ultimately doesn't help us. It seems wild that uh, just such a little narrow stretch of water can really affect global shipping. Why, why do we depend so much on narrow corridors like that? And why does that affect the wider chain? Well, I, th I think, I mean, a lot of what we consume, a lot of what we eat, a lot of what we make generally in the world... Um, you know, we rely upon things coming from other places and going to other places, whether it's it's what we provide or what we require or what we what we provide in terms of products. 
And we've, we've grown to rely on the Suez Canal, for instance, and the Panama Canal. So anywhere where there's a narrow isthmus like that and we can join two major water bodies, then it's, you know, it's been a good idea to, to have a canal. So, yeah, so we are very reliant on those two sea links. Um, but, but generally speaking, the flow of materials is a little bit like the bloodstream. You want it to keep flowing. If it stops, usually you're having a bad day. <laughs> uh, it's, it's an enormous, when you think about it, an, an enormous value, uh, volume and value of goods that go through these two mm. very narrow bodies of water. Mm. Mm. Have you had any ships delayed in, in your orders so far? Yeah, so it's, it's not unusual for, uh, for ships to be delayed. It can be for a number of reasons. Um, and normally you factor that into your supply chain. So, And also it pushes you as well to look and see if, obviously, if there are locally based alternatives that you can bring in alongside that so at the moment um, we are trying we try all the time to minimize the amount of material that we're importing but Australia is not quite in a position yet where it can provide everything that we need um, but it would be nice if that was the case we tend to work uh, with longer buffer times and higher stock levels uh, neither of which are great for the business but fish have got to be fed well, on that, I mean, it's one thing for people to have to wait for their IKEA furniture, but it's another thing for animals who are depending on food. What happens to the fish? Oh, well, we, we've got an incredibly adept team here. Uh, of, I mean, we call them nutritionists, but you could almost describe them as master chefs <laughs> who can effectively put together com different combinations of materials to make sure that the fish um, get what they need nutritionally. I mean, the fish can't be compromised. They're, sometimes it can take two years, three years to, for a fish to get to market from, from being born. And so you have to make the nutrition right all the way through there because that fish is needed in two or three years' time and it's difficult to replace it at any point in its life. How much extra does it cost to ship your, your ingredients around the bottom of South Africa as opposed to through mm. the Suez Canal? Mm. Well, I mean, it, it, it really is just a matter of, of how big the vessels that would be that would run there and how many containers they've got them to dilute it. But you could effectively say that the, a lot of the cost of shipping is, is related to how many days that it's away. So it would probably put another 10 days on. So you could be talking about a 20 to 25% or more cost increase. It's incredibly complicated. It is. <laughs> we have a very good team here that look after it. But even then, um, they have a lot of days where uh, things change several times in a day, never mind over a month. I should mention or ask about containers as mm -hmm. well, because the other side of this is that containers are tied up for longer than yes, ever. Yes, exactly. Yeah. What does that do to the supply chain? Well, you've, you need to get boxes to put stuff in and having the right containers available at the port um, when you're loading is absolutely critical. Uh, it's termed equipment. And uh, obviously, certainly during COVID, uh, lots of containers were ending up in the wrong spot. So you would have some ports that were desperate, didn't have any empties, and ports that were overstocked and couldn't move for empties. I think there were photos of American ports, yeah, particularly just full Just of absolutely containers. full of containers. And the challenge with that is that it doesn't do anyone any good, and, and the shipping companies don't like moving empty containers because generally they don't get paid for it. It's the middle bit of the, of the, uh, of the challenge is, yes, you can sometimes have a booking for a shipping line, but you might not have enough containers to actually put on that boat. So No, I mean, I think, I think Tasmania is a fantastic island. Our biosecurity is fantastic. Australia is a magnificent place, and we just have to reconcile ourselves that it's far away from a lot of other places and uh, just do the best we can to shorten up those supply chains. And certainly our long-term plan is to try and source as much as we possibly can from Tasmania and Australia. BioMar Managing Director David White talking there to Meg Powell about having in the shipping supply chain. Mornings with Leon Compton. Uh, it doesn't get much bigger than that. This is big news. This is incredible news, in fact. Now we're talking Tasmania. The word has got out as far away as England. But Mr Crawford, please pass on Our Majesty's heartfelt congratulations to Mr Compton. Leon Compton. I think it's been four or five years in the making. So the super guide, Nick Crawford, has helped me to my first kingfish. Leon Compton. I am a man. Back on Monday from 8.30. It's done. On ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. It's the Country Hour with Larissa Smith on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
going to be talking about the grain harvest in the second half of the program and whiskey as well, so stay tuned for that. But let's continue that conversation around shipping and switch to livestock. As we heard yesterday, a shipment of sheep and cattle destined for the Middle East is on its way back to Australia after being diverted from travelling through the Red Sea due to the region's deteriorating security situation. The MV Bahiza is loaded with around 15,000 sheep and 2,000 cattle and is expected back in Australia at a, yet to determ- at a port yet to be determined in about a week. CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council, Mark Harvey Sutton, says under the circumstances, returning the ship to Australia is the best option. Look, uh, when uh, a vessel goes, you, know, you take a certain amount of uh, fodder uh, for the animals. Uh, and it's my understanding that, and of course, repatriation or uh, returning to Australia is obviously a complex exercise, uh, given Australia's very robust uh, biosecurity frameworks. Uh, so the fact that the vessel has not docked uh, in any other port, uh, has not taken on supplies uh, in any port, uh, means that the biosecurity risk can be managed. Uh, and so a decision was made that let's return them uh, and we will manage the biosecurity uh, and th- there is sufficient supplies on board for the animals uh, to make sure that their welfare is assured. So what happens to the livestock when they eventually arrive back in Australia? What are the options? Uh, there's a couple of things that can happen. It can be re-exported um, or perhaps they will be processed uh, domestically. Uh, but that all needs to be confirmed. That's a that's a decision that the exporter will have to make in consultation with the department. And I'm not privy uh, to those discussions, but there's certainly procedures and processes that can be put in place, uh, and that's what they'll be looking at at the moment. Over the weekend, the RSPCA was calling on all live exporters to immediately implement a voluntary suspension of all live export voyages to destinations that are in or near regions of conflict. How appropriate is that? I think it's, uh, sadly, I think that's very inappropriate, Belinda, because... But why, considering uh, the circumstances with these the attacks on commercial vessels in this region? As we know, the RSPCA has a mandate to stop live exports no matter what, uh, and uh, they do not have to deal with the implications. I think it is very advantageous and opportunistic of them to be using uh, what is a very tumultuous period uh, globally uh, to their advantage. Uh, have no doubt we will be putting animal welfare and safety of people uh, ahead of anything, uh, but I think it is overly simplistic to simply say, well, we should stop uh, trading to this region. Now, we're waiting for Murray Watt, the Federal Agriculture Minister, to announce plans for a phase-out of the live sheep trade. Could this conflict in the Red Sea actually kill off the trade prior to the release of the government's phase-out plans? No, it won't do that. Um, And we don't just supply the Red Sea uh, in the Middle East, Belinda. And as as the Minister has been at pains to articulate, he wants this to be a very orderly uh, process uh, and he is taking advice from his independent panel, which uh, we are awaiting uh, the outcome from. Uh, But to, if, if this was to prompt uh, or to speed up any uh, political decisions, which we know uh, is wrong and we continue to oppose, I think that would be uh, very inappropriate. Um, and ultimately, the issue that we have at the moment is making sure that we can maintain trade uh, and maintain animal welfare and the safety of the crew to the region. So, mm. I guess uh, the this- last thing you'd want, though, is one of these ships going into this region and... Uh, finding itself under attack. I mean, oh, that's the worst-case scenario. That, 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 is, that is correct, Belinda, and that's why uh, the Bahisha diverted. That was why they turned around. Let me assure you, the exporters take in, into account all of these factors, as do the shipping companies, uh, whether that's the exporter themselves or the shipping company they engage. All of these things are factors that they take into account. Uh, it's very complex, uh, but I can assure you that every consideration is being made around that and you're right that is not the situation that we want and uh, I have every confidence that the the processes that people are going through at the moment will ensure that that does not occur.
Mark Harvey Sutton, CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council with Belinda Varaschetti. Coming up in the second half of the program, we'll drop into a large grain storage and receival site in the Northern Midlands, find out how harvest is tracking, and also hear from the owner of Lorenia Estate in the Central Highlands at Ooze and why a... Uh, a bit of a family gamble has paid off to swap farming and get into whiskey. That's coming up in the second half of the program. Our 2024 Australians of the Year will be revealed tomorrow and ABC Radio will be celebrating the winners live. I'm Adam Shirley. Together we'll meet 2024's Australian of the Year, Senior Australian of the Year, Young Australian of the Year and Local Hero. Will they be from your state? Can't drag me on ABC Radio via your digital radio or the ABC Listen app. Coast to coast, this is the Country Hour with Larissa Smith on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Great to have your company this lunch hour. I'll be with you until one. Time now to catch up with the Bureau of Meteorology. Alex Melitsis is on deck today. What have we got in the way of rain, Alex? Oh, we haven't seen too much uh, over the last 24 hours, uh, Larissa. Uh, in the 24 hours to 9am this morning, uh, we saw a few millimetres uh, one to three millimetres across uh, parts of the north and a little down the east coast, just dribs and drabs really. And uh, since 9am uh, we haven't reported too much. Uh, again, just dribs and drabs mainly in the west. So uh, nothing uh, nothing too much in the, in the rain gauges so far to speak of. And uh, we do have a little bit of shower activity across uh, much of the state uh, as we speak. There's some radar activity uh, across uh, the eastern and the southern halves of the state right now. But again, just some light uh, showers in that. And we are expecting those light showers to continue for the rest of the day. But look, uh, basically what we're seeing today is a, um, a northeasterly airstream over us that's bringing some cloudy and uh, humid uh, conditions to us and uh, fairly mild conditions as well. So it's, uh, temperatures are generally around 2 to 5 degrees below average across uh, most parts of the state today. So it feels almost a little bit autumnal out there today, uh, kind of a, a day that you'd expect to see in sort of March or late, later March or April actually. So cool, uh, cool today. And then we get a bit of a change uh, tomorrow. So uh, it'll be quite an interesting day tomorrow. It'll be quite humid at first as a, um, as a trough crosses us in the morning. Uh, then we'll see warm, drier westerlies move over the state during tomorrow afternoon. So tomorrow morning there'll be showers across much of the state. We're expecting to see one to five millimetres of rainfall tomorrow uh, around the east and south and inland areas. There'll be little rainfall tomorrow about the north and west. And then it'll be a totally different uh, situation tomorrow afternoon where we'll see um, uh, those warmer westerlies move over us. So there'll be some light showers into the west tomorrow, but uh, dry and sunny elsewhere tomorrow afternoon, reaching the mid to high 20s during the evening across the, uh, during the afternoon across the eastern half. So, uh, yeah, quite a warm day tomorrow afternoon, and we'll even see some high fire dangers across the uh, Midlands and Upper Verdurant Valley tomorrow. Then on Thursday and Friday, we, we really get um, entrenched in a, a fresh westerly wind regime for a couple of days. So we'll see those fresh westerlies or west to north westerlies on Thursday and Friday across most parts. Uh, we'll see a little cold front cross on Friday. That'll bring another burst of cool air to us on Friday. And uh, during that Thursday-Friday period with those westerlies, we're looking at around 20 to 50 millimetres of rainfall falling into the west and less than 5 millimetres elsewhere. And that sort of, can, that sort of uh, weather situation continues on the weekend. We're looking at westerlies on the weekend. Uh, it'll be a you know, cooler weekend, uh, so temperatures below average on the weekend, and another 20 to 50 millimetres of rainfall into the west on Saturday and Sunday. But it's looking like we will see another burst of heat uh, on Monday next week as a uh, warm northwesterly airstream moves over us then. Oh, what a relief. I don't like this autumnal weather. It's just too early. Yeah, well, uh, looking at the longer range forecast for the next couple of weeks, it does look like there are some bursts of heat on the way. So uh, just a little burst of cooler, cooler weather today and on Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. What's happening with uh, coastal waters then, Alex? 
Yeah, so um, if you are going uh, boating tomorrow, uh, it'll start off in the morning uh, with northeasterly winds around 20 to 30 knots, but we'll get a change uh, moving through. So winds shifting westerly across the north and west during the morning, then that westerly sh- uh, shift will move across the east and the south uh, later on in the day. Uh, swells tomorrow in the west and south, uh, the south to southwesterly swell of 1 to 2 metres. In the north tomorrow, a confused swell below 1 metre. And in the east, a southerly swell tomorrow of around 1 to 2 metres. And we're also expecting to see a northeasterly swell tomorrow of around 1 to 2 metres build during the morning. Uh, currently, the Cape Sorrel Wave Rider buoy in the west is sitting on around uh, 1.5 metres. And that's a southwesterly with a period of around 7 seconds. And that's all you're going to dish up today? Um, Look, just the other thing, uh, if you are going boating tomorrow, uh, we will see some fresher winds uh, with those westerlies moving through. So we do have a strong wind warning out uh, for all coastal waters for tomorrow. Terrific. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, Larissa. Help your child learn to read in just 15 minutes a day with the award-winning ABC Reading Eggs. There's one-on-one lessons, fun games and exciting rewards based on scientific research and developed by Australian educators. Start your free 30-day trial now and get a free rewards sticker book to help your child track their progress. ABC Reading Eggs makes learning to read fun. Find out more at readingeggs.com.au slash ABC. Keeping you updated every day. The Tasmanian Country Hour with Larissa Smith. If you're travelling on some of the state's major highways, you might have noticed an increase in agricultural freight. Grain harvest is in full swing and buyer XLD Commodities has taken in roughly 30% of its expected deliveries of wheat, barley and canola at Piranha in the Northern Midlands. CEO John Tuscan says while crop quality has been strong, the industry won't be making any production records this season. Well, it's been pretty steady. We started about a week earlier than we did last year uh, for the, the same time, so that was that was promising. Canola was obviously the first crop to come off, and that's been um, 40 to 50% down on volumes from last year. So, to be honest, it's been a, a pretty easy harvest for canola. What we have noticed is that the oil content seems to be down a bit this year, so not sure if that's the growing season or there might be other factors in that, but the quality of the canola is really good. Um, and the harvest quality, so low um, admix, so not, not a lot of trash. So it's, it's stored really well and, and, and unloaded really well, whereas opposed to last harvest, we had quite a problem with admix and um, really, really hard on gear and getting it out of the trucks into the silo. So that was a really positive thing. Where will that canola end up? So that all ends up locally. So um, we've got the local crusher out of Cressy, Macquarie Oils, and a little bit going into Ingham's, um, and that's, that's about it. But um, this year's crop will be um, quite a large deficit to requirements, so the latter half of the year there will need to be more, more brought across the water, unfortunately. Does that surprise you? Because in the last probably two or three seasons there has been this push to encourage growers to plant more canola and prices were pretty favourable there at one point, but I guess they've backed off a bit. Yeah, the prices have certainly eased off. I mean, they hit over $1,000 last year or the year before now and um, obviously made it quite attractive. But um, agronomically, it's a, you know, it, it, it's, it's a little bit more involved. Growers seem to be taking the opportunity using the grazing canolas as well. So that um, adds another dimension in the management to make sure you, you get a good crop at the end. Again, you can only go anecdotally, but you know, a lot of growers that didn't grow last this year from last year, there'd be some that have weren't happy with the results, but there are others that didn't fit into their rotation. So canola is certainly going to be around, but you know, last year we probably had our first surplus um, over demand. A little bit shy, but, but pretty close, whereas this year it's going to be you know, probably less than 50% of what the, what the state's demand is. What's going on with barley? How have those deliveries been? Yeah, barley's uh, been good. I mean, the early early days yet barley's our longest crop um, starts in December and finishes in April um, so the early early crops that have come in there's been a, a good percentage of malt um, so for for growers that's 
what a lot of them are chasing is is, is obviously that malt spec, which gives them a uh, a bonus over over the top of feed grade. A little little bit of high moisture barley coming in, which is probably evident that some people want to get the crop off, and as, again that poses a few challenges for segregation. But the, again, the quality's there. A little bit of uh, crop damage, uh, frost damage on on some of the some of the crops. Uh, haven't haven't got a full report on the yields from from growers, but you can only imagine that the the volumes coming in are, are indicating that they're, they're probably average yields. Yeah, look, looking pretty good. Similar story for wheat. If anything, the wheat quality so far we've seen is 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 equal to last year, and and last year was an exceptional year. Um, this year we decided to segregate the white and red wheats, distinct markets, but the red wheats that have come in have uh, proven to be really high test weights, uh, good quality, there's a few varieties now that seem to be the go-to varieties for growers. Yeah, all accounts, the yields have, have, have been really strong on the irrigated crops. The white wheats, it's a little bit early to, to get a, a, good, a good general feel, but um, the early crops that have came in, the, again, the quality's been good. Uh, there's a newer variety this year, which is the second year in, in, in commercial production, which again is testing really well. What's that? That's war. That's a um, uh, it's a new variety, and it's I believe it's actually a hybrid out of a, a red wheat, but it's actually a, a classified white wheat, and the and the test results of that have been really really strong. So, what was the decision behind segregating the two wheats? So, there's a lot of uh, dairy in particular, but there's a lot of uh, growers that like the consistency of white wheat. Generally white wheat has a, a higher spec for test weight protein. They find that it actually gives them a more consistent feed quality and even though some of these white wheats aren't ASW varieties, um, they actually are having all the traits of an ASW spec wheat. So um, we believe that it you know, gives an opportunity to divert some of that product that would be coming from the mainland to actually you know, supplying local grain. You can command yes. a, a premium price? Yes, so we did um, offer a premium this year, uh, white over red, and for, for forward contracts. And you know, that um, again, it's the, the, the pricing does fluctuate, but that you know, price premium can be anywhere from $5 to $20, depending on, um, on where it was contracted. How long do you expect this harvest to carry through? I mean, each year is so different, isn't yeah. it? But are you thinking sort of closer to Easter? Yeah, I think Easter's early this year, so I think we might <laughs> we might miss that benchmark. But um, look, last year it trickled into April, but it would be fair to say that it was all but finished by the end of March. And I'd like to think we'll probably... You know, do the same again, that it will trickle into April again with some of those later crops. But, yeah, I think we'll, we'll be broken its back by, or our backs by, by the end of March. XLD Commodities CEO John Tuscan there. The company has around 20 casuals on its books during the busy harvest period, and this season more than half of them working at its Piranha receival site are women. I dropped into the Weybridge to catch up with a few of them testing grain as the trucks rolled in. So we had a vacuum probe, I guess. You stab it into the truck about five times, typically for a semi, and that sucks up the grain, no matter the commodity, into a little collector. And then we empty that into a bucket and bring it into the sample stand to start testing for protein, moisture, test weight and screenings. So my name's Jessica Finnegan. I'm a third year, so my third harvest here at XLD. And I've done the whole work, sort of, so I've done lots of testing stand stuff, which is what I'm doing today, but I've also done stuff on ground, which involves uh, running the augers to unload uh, trucks, but also to load them from the silos, um, operating machinery and whatnot to ensure that everything runs smoothly. Um, but yeah, so what I'm doing right now is the agitator's just finished, which basically shakes the grain back and forth 40 times. Um, and that separates the sizes of the grain and that allows me to test for screenings because we've got to ensure that they're within a certain standard as dictated by Grain Trade Australia's standards. What about your background? Do you come <laughs> off a farm? Do you have an interest in ag? 
I come off a small little, I don't know, I'd call it a lifestyle property. I've got 25 acres just near Exeter out there. So I've got the interest, but ironically enough, I'm not studying ag at university. I'm actually studying medical science. But it's good because I come home and it's something that I enjoy doing and I get paid to do it, so why not? So essentially, um, if there aren't any trucks, sometimes other farmers come in um, within opening hours and we can test their moisture and protein, mostly moisture, for them to begin harvesting, etc. So yeah, that's just a nice thing if they don't have those facilities at home that they can come and do it with us. Hello, so my name is Alita Ives and I am a second returning harvest casual for the 2023-2024 harvest season. Yeah. And so you've just been testing some barley, it's just a tad over the, the moisture limit. over the moisture limit, yeah. So um, basically, yeah, they sort of um, use that as a, as a guide, um, whether they can come in again and keep retesting until it's the right, the right number. You're a return uh, XLD casual. Um, but yeah, there's always new things to learn, that's for sure. So it's nice coming back and the team are absolutely wonderful here. It's really nice to, you know, get a good um, progression line going, especially in the testing stand. So everyone's got their little assigned jobs and yeah, we really encourage each other and help each other through it. Lovely. Yeah. Thank you. We'll see you very shortly. Thanks, Andy. My name's India Vani and I'm a harvest casual for the casual period of 2023 and 2024 yeah it's just been very busy of late and it's all go so we're standing inside the Weybridge. what do you have to do when the trucks come in essentially i've got to grab their docket and they've already pre-filled that one out and i grab their weight off the tear Weybridge. then we will enter it into our system create a halfway docket and then we proceed with um, our testing and getting their moisture, test weight, screenings and protein just to make sure we're putting the right grain into each silo and you know everything's up to standards. Yeah then once that's all been tested we direct them to the silo that they have to go to um, and unload. So one of our harvest casuals will go and unload the truck driver and the truck and then um, they will come and tear off their weight and um, then they'll head back to the paddock and do a new load. What uh, would you normally be doing over this summer period? Working casual jobs and enjoying the outdoors and this job is the like greatest job also. So it's you're outside, you're inside, you w- feel like you're working hard. and You've got a bunch of nice girls around and you. And lovely yeah. girls in the testing stand and boys. Yeah, it's a really great group that we've got this harvest. And um, yeah, it's like great management, like it's the best. So yeah. Have you got an interest in that? Yeah, I do. I um, am not personally from a farm, so I used to compete in equestrian rider and I've always been outdoors sort of girl so yeah it has been quite eye-opening in terms of like coming into a job that is like ag heavy and um, yeah I've just learnt so much in such a short period of being employed so yeah. India Viney, one of the harvest casuals working at XLD Commodities at its Piranha Grain Storage Facility. Uh, We've had a a text in in relation to some of our coverage around those shipping delays both domestically and internationally. Uh, John from Hobart says, Hi Country Hour, I think that some of the sensational claims of shipping delays should be challenged. A quick survey of four shipping comparison websites indicate that the Cape of Good Hope route is about a 1,000 nautical miles longer and takes an additional four to six days, not the two to three weeks that's being quoted. Could you get an unbiased assessment of the facts? Thanks, John in Hobart. Thanks for the feedback, John. I suspect that the two to three weeks uh, that's being talked about by a lot of these shipping companies and experts involved in the field are referred to perhaps uh, some of the other factors at play in dealing with the backlog of all these vessels are out at sea trying to access uh, ports. And there's, there's other things involved there too. But thanks so much for your feedback. Ten to one on the Tasmanian Country Hour. We'll catch up with John Reinberger to find out what's happening with your afternoons 
in just a few minutes. But before that, let's talk whiskey. And after farming cattle for decades, the owner of the Rennie Estate decided to pivot to whiskey in Tasmania's Central Highlands. A more lucrative product, it also came with a bit of a gamble, a seven-year wait for their first batch to be ready. Owner Ross Mace talks to reporter Clancy Barlin about perfecting its golden drop. After World War II, Lorraine, which was a very large holding, was split up into soldier settler blocks along the Derwent River, which is just behind the distillery. Um, along that river, there were 14 200-acre dairy farms. In those days, you could make a living out of milking 40 to 60 cows. We are fortunate, were fortunate enough to buy two of them adjoining, so we have 400 acres, but it is still basically unviable. It's not a large enough property, so in the back of our minds, my wife and myself, we always thought or knew we would have to do or have some alternate income. We visited last time about six or seven years ago. What's changed in that time? Well, it's grown probably faster than we had ever expected. The basic reason for that is that we were lucky enough to acquire the services of some very good staff. The quality of what they put out, the efficiency that they put it out, just required us to continue to expand size-wise with extra bond stores if we wanted to make the full potential or take full potential of what we actually had developed. What are you doing in your paddocks that makes a difference to the whiskey? What makes it stand out to other products? So the only thing in whiskey is water, yeast and barley. Now we we have our own water in the River Derwent. It has its source from Lake St Clair in the Highlands. We grow our own barley to our head distiller, Joe Dinsmore, his specifications, and we don't malt that on site, but we, we have a contract with a, malt, a large malting company, and they, do our, they malt our barley um, to Joe's specifications. So everything we do is under our control, and basically it's... Um, all done here. It definitely is a unique way of doing this. You've had to wait a while. Uh, what have you done in the meantime to, to cover any losses or, or make money while you've been waiting for this process to finish? We also make gin, vodka, cold brewed coffee liqueur. The gin and vodka operation is profitable on its own, but it can't fully support the rapid development and uh, investment that's required in purchasing barrels uh, for the whiskey. Its biggest advantage was that we were able to put that out basically straight away. We started selling gin in December 2017, but that's given us this six years to develop an avenue to market for our whiskey. Do you think it's been a good investment and a good pivot for your business? I think we... We're fortunate to have top product, top distilling personnel. We were able to read a little bit more or understand a little bit more of the demographics of where the industry was going, and that's put us in good stead. How do exports go with the dollar at the moment? Are you looking to export overseas? Uh, We do export overseas, and we're still developing that. But we're in um, uh, Singapore... Uh, a lot of, um, they call it travel retail, uh, duty-free shops. But there's a lot, a long way to go. We've only just started to release whisky in a, on a small scale, so it's no use going out having markets we can't fulfil. Are you making a profit at the moment? Yes. I don't know if you remember or you recall, but the last time the ABC came down here to talk to you about this, you said you wished you'd done this 40 years ago. Do you still feel that way? Yeah. um, I'm 79 in a month's time. Some of our whiskey is still, uh, well, our 300 litre barrels are probably 30 years away. I would love to have been able to see those come through. There's something quite bittersweet about that, but it's an investment into the future. Yeah, it is. It is. Joe Dinsmore is the head distiller at Lorraine that Ross speaks so highly about. 
He's young, but he's already got over a decade of experience under his belt. He took me through the distillery to discuss what sets their whiskey apart in a crowded market. The parallels can be drawn between sort of a paddock to bottle distillery as they are to a paddock to plate restaurant. So we know what the barley's going to be, look like. It gives us a bit of versatility in how we want to get things malted. And look, like most farmers, they tend to do most of the things themselves, and that's, that's no different for us. So, How unusual is it for a whiskey producer to be in control of that entire process? It's not a common thing globally. There's such a high concentration of distilleries in Tasmania now. How does that factor into your approach and how does it feed into maybe taking a risk or taking a creative approach to your product? Yeah, like it's a great question. Yeah, there is a lot. There is a lot of distilleries um, in Tasmania. There's a lot in um, Australia, and this didn't happen in a bubble. It's not just domestic. The distillery boom. We've taken a more probably reserved and traditional approach too to have a lasting. Um, product and have a lasting influence going forward on your market you need to have a, a bit of consistency and probably something that a, um, a customer is not going to kind of fall out of love with. I also asked Joe to show me one of their bond stores to talk me through their storage process. The bond store is where um, it's where the, the, the whiskey goes to sleep so probably something that that we do a little bit differently here is um, the actual construction of our warehouse itself. You'd find in most bond stores in Australia, you have essentially just a really big tin shed, uh, whereas ours is a double-clad timber with a really, really high roof line, vented eaves, very thick concrete floor. And what all of that is doing is sort of aligning us a little bit more in the technique that they'd be using in Scotland or in Kentucky in the States. And what that allows us is just for the whiskey to kind of be going, um, going on uh, nice and slow, low and slow. There surely must be a moment where you're thinking, why did we take the slow route? This is such a gamble. Does it ever feel that way? Look, not for me. We wouldn't be doing anything unless we had experience or, or data or knowledge about it without doing it. We're not just doing things on a whim. Clancy Barland chatting to Lorraine distillery owner Ross Mace and head distiller Joe Dinsmore at Ooze. Joel Reinberger is hosting Your Afternoons very shortly. What's coming up today, Joel? Hello there, Larissa. Now, were you a fan of the movie Mean Girls 20-odd years ago? Oh, wasn't a fan, but no, exactly the movie you're talking about. It was very yeah. cult. It following. was. Lindsay Lohan was in it. Uh, you know, very funny, uh, biting kind of movie. Well, the new version of Mean Girls has just come out uh, by the same writer, which is actually Tina Fey. Oh, she's uh, great. Who, who, uh, who appears in both of the movies as well. So my reviewer, Tim Martin, is going to be uh, talking about Mean Girls, and he took teenage girls to go and see it <laughs> last night. So we'll be interested to see how Tim's thoughts compare to the thoughts of uh, uh, his daughter and friends, etc., about how that's working. Uh, and also, you know how sometimes your boss just tells you you're doing something today? Yes. You're doing this today? <laughs> yeah. The boss of me, who is my producer, Lucy Bain, says, you're learning to line dance today, Joel. Oh, Joel. <laughs> so a line dancing teacher is coming in, and uh, I've got uh, Giddy Up by Shania Twain here ready to play, <laughs> and I'm going to be taught to line dance in the studio. Oh, oh the joys of being me today. Good luck. Thank you. (laughs) Your afternoons with Joel Reinberger coming up. That's it for the Country Hour team. We'll catch you tomorrow. ABC Sports coverage of the Australian Open Tennis. Don't miss a minute on the ABC Listener.